Well, this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit with all of you about strategies. And, and two particular strategies uh, that I want us to, to talk about, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this too, that it seems to be pretty in vogue or trendy for everyone to be talking about strategies. And my guess is it's because so much in the world has changed in the last two years and continues to change that the vocabulary and this lens of strategy is being talked about everywhere you look. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that. You read a blog, you hear something, everyone's talking about new strategies. I mean, we, you, you talk about business. If you're a business person, you know that there's conversation about new strategies to prevent employee turnover or how to rebuild your team so that they're all in sync and in the same vision with the company. If you're in the space of, of education, there's been tons of conversation about new strategies and how to interweave all these new technologies and distant stuff with a good old-fashioned face-to-face education so that our students are well-rounded, emotionally intelligent students, right? You with me? If you're in the health space, I don't know, has anyone been hearing about new health strategies? One in particular that I've been hearing about are people that are eating raw beef liver. Has anyone seen that kind of thing? You guys, it's a thing. Ew. I'm a foodie. I love food and I love beef, but I don't, I don't know if I could let raw beef liver slither down my throat. I prefer little vitamins that you take with orange juice. Or better yet, the little gummy bear ones that are meant for kids, but whatever. You know, you, know, you, you, you got me. And then lately, we've been hearing a lot about war strategies, combat. With the unfortunate and tragic situation happening in Ukraine, we keep reading about this people that are resisting and opposing and, and defending their country as underdogs against all odds, strategies that are working for them. And so what I want to do is talk about a strategy that's not new. A strategy that is age-old, that we find in the Bible all the way going back to the first book, in the third chapter in Genesis. It's a strategy that I believe that if we can identify and understand, then we, as the people of God, can begin practicing a counter-strategy. Because the strategy that I want us to look at uh, this morning, what enemy? Well, it's, it's the enemy that Jesus himself describes in John 10.10 10 as this enemy that comes with this explicit purpose to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the same en uh, enemy that if we go and we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, it describes this enemy as, first of all, a great enemy. So don't poo-poo him. A great enemy that goes around like on a prowl like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so in that passage, it actually says, stay alert. Notice it doesn't say cower, get freaked out, get afraid, cover your eyes. No, no, it says stay alert. You know, recently I've been reading this fascinating book by a, a pastor out in the Portland area. His name is John Mark Comer, and he's got this fascinating book that I've been absolutely loving. And he makes this observation. And he says, for a lot of people, it's hard for them to identify the strategy of the enemy because they don't even really believe in an enemy. A lot of people have this notion of like, well, okay, Jesus, God, love it, all that great stuff. But when you're talking about an entity, 
like an animated dark force that wants to do something, that has a plan, because the Bible talks about it. A lot of people understand that God has a plan for our lives. Amen? He has a plan. It's an exciting plan. It's one that we can be all in, lean into. But listen, friends, the enemy also has a plan that he wants to see fulfilled in our lives. And so there's two people groups. You know, that, 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 that one person that goes like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I really believe that there's an enemy that's out for my destruction. Or there's the other camp. A lot of people that believe like, yeah, I believe that there's an enemy. But their concept of the, 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 this enemy, the image in their mind of this en- enemy, is, is far more like a Harry Potter, fantasy-like, you know, it's, it's the devil in the, the red tights with the spiky tail and the red velvet cape, you know what I mean, with the horns, who offices out of the DMV. You guys with me? It's, 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 and so we laugh about it because these concepts are kind of comical. It's, it's, it's hard to take serious that enemy. And when we don't realize that the Bible doesn't even talk about them that way. Jesus never describes them that way. And so we have like this comical half fantasy-like enemy or just like, I don't know if he's there. And yet there is a strategy that I believe if we can identify, we can begin practicing a counter strategy that the, that the Bible gives us so that we can continue living in the will of God. You guys with me? You guys want to know the strategy? Because you know you're going like, well, are we going to be talking about the devil today? No, the, the point of the message today is not the devil, okay? There's a lot of hope in this message, but we've got to identify what his tricks are. You guys with me? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to read together a passage that the Apostle Paul writes. And the interesting thing about this passage is he basically pulls back the curtain and helps us identify three players in this old, ancient, never-changing strategy that the enemy has. Okay, so I'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as the others. I love this passage because he just kind of pulls the curtains back. He's like, here are the three main Players, And so let's review this together, not necessarily in order, but let's just start with the devil. He calls him out, doesn't he? Gives him a kind of poetic name, the prince of the power of the air, but he calls him out. There is an enemy. But then he talks about also the flesh. And he says the desires of the flesh. And what he's referring to here is this human condition that all of us have of these competing, many times contradictory opposing desires that we have. And friends, we all have them. It's, it's this arena that God wants to come in and establish his lordship. Okay, but, but we all have these competing desires and, 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 and passions. For instance, I don't know about you, but I really desire to have the physique of a 26-year-old professional soccer player. Yeah, baby. I do. 
but I also want extra bacon on my seven pound cheeseburger that's dipped in queso. Have you guys seen that? Have you, I'm a foodie. I, have you guys seen those, those videos of that huge burger that has like a cookie cutter on the top that's full of cheese? And then when they set it in front of a person, they pull the cookie cutter off and the cheese just kind of engulfs the burger. And it gives you this very real sense that everything is okay in the universe. So what do you do with those two passions? And so I see the bacon and the, and the, and the cheese-dipped cheeseburger, and I don't know what I want more. Well, obviously, you guys can tell what I want more, but, but you know what I mean? It's, there's those moments of, like, I don't know what I want more. Because, yes, I do want to be generous with the world, but I also want to go to the Mexican Riviera. I, I, I want to walk in love, but I also want to tell that guy you know, give them a piece of my mind. There, there, there's these moments that we all wrestle, and that's part of the human condition. And that is why we are all invited into this process. So, so let's take a step back. Because when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our spirit is born again made completely 100% new, it's accepted, forgiven, and it's all by the grace of God. But we still have this soul, this mind that needs renewing. We still have these cracks and these fissures and these deep insecurities and these fears from the past and these tensions and anxieties and these, all the, the squirrely thinking, Amen. These opposing deep passions on the inside of us that God wants to do something with. And that's why we get invited as a people into this process that's not a moment. It's an ever-present process that we together get to walk in so we grow and understand and let go and embrace, unlearn a whole bunch of stuff so we can relearn the truth. You with me? You know, we just got back from Peru, and I was telling Lynn and Julio, we had an amazing time there. The church is opening back up after two years. I mean, we were having like 90 people baptized every single Sunday. It was, it's amazing what God is doing. Our, our, our auditorium, standing room only, and that's with people who have to wear a mask the whole time and stand in line and present their vaccination card just to get in. That's the laws of the land. And people are like, I don't care. I'll show you my vaccination card. I'll wear two masks if you want me to. And so it's just amazing, amazing atmosphere, people getting saved. And, and what I love about what our pastor in Peru does, Pastor Robert Berger, is he'll always make this invitation to people who have received Jesus. Once people receive Jesus, he goes like, let me, let me challenge you with something. Give God one year of your life. Now, he doesn't say give him five minutes. He doesn't say, okay, give him one weekend every couple weeks. You know, give him three months. No, he says give him one year of your life, like all in. Get in the process so you begin to recognize the fruit of that kind of thing. The fruit of what God can do when he begins restoring and renewing our mind and, 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 and rebuilding and, and, and really reordering what's going on in here. I love the way... Pastor John Mark talks about it. He uses the phrase disordered desires when he talks about the soul. Because really when you think about it, it's been said that the world and what's going on in the world, it, it, it's not happening because there's a lack of love. There's not a lack of love in the world. 
What's happening is that there's so many people that are loving the wrong thing. You with me? And I, we can identify that one really easy, but when it comes to our own lives, it's a little bit harder to discern because many times we're loving the right thing. We're just loving it in the wrong order. You know, many years ago, I was in Colombia doing a youth conference. And I remember that the youth conference fell in the same week that there was these classify, uh, elimination or classification, classifying uh, soccer matches to get into the World Cup. And, you know, they can't schedule them because the matches just have to, you know, they end up being how they are. And so here we are in Colombia, and one of the soccer matches landed on one of our main nights of this conference. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a bummer. We're probably not going to have as many people. Are you kidding me? The conference got canceled because Colombia was playing Uruguay. And you just, like, this is the town that when they won, they took to the streets and they'd shoot machine guns in the air. And so I'm telling the story to another pastor friend in Argentina. And he's like, well, Danny, why are you surprised? In Latin America, soccer, soccer is so important. And I said, yeah, but what about God? And he says, Daniel. He goes, come on, in Latin America. And he does this. Now watch me. He goes, Daniel, in Latin America, God is number one. Football is number two. And then he laughs. Now, before you all get judgy with him, he's just trying to explain the passion for soccer. I think it's important for us to identify the moments that happens with us. The guy that says, yeah, absolutely. My wife is number one. Football, Monday night football is number two. Or the kid who all his life hears parents go like, yeah, my children, my family, they're number one. My job is number two. Now listen, it's okay to love football and your job. But sometimes things are out of order and we need wisdom. We need the lamp unto our feet. We need the word to begin to uh, realign and get us back on that track. So we can begin living the life that is full of joy and compassion This life, it's just easier to hear the voice and direction of the Holy Spirit. It's just lighter and and a lot better to live. And that's the process that we are invited into. And the soul, the flesh, what he's talking about here, is that arena where God wants to come and not slap you around and get all... No, he wants to sit down with you and go like, hey, let's look at all these things and let's patiently... He's patient... Let's take our time to put things in order. You guys with me? So we've got the devil. We've got that arena, the soul, and the desires that we find there. But then he also talks about, he talks about the world. And he talks about the current or the course of the world, the current. And we can call this society. This is the, the, the social context in which you and I move every single day that doesn't necessarily affirm or believe in the teachings of the Bible. In these contexts, the Bible is not wisdom. It's not true north. It's not truth. It's just one more thing out there. You can call this your generation. You can call it your school, your social networks, your social media. You can call it Netflix, your, prefer, your preferred source of, of news. Really, it's this, this social context in which we are exposed 
to the trends and the ideas and the opinions and the influence that social context has on how we see the world. You guys with me? Okay, I'm trying not to get too dense here. You guys with me for real? Okay. It's the place that most people will go to when they're trying to answer that age-old question, like, what's the good life? How do I live the good life? Most people will turn to an Instagram feed. They'll turn to the movies. They'll turn to the opinions of their friends, of their neighbors, what's going on in those social contexts. That's the world. And so the Apostle Paul is going like, hey, to understand the strategy, you need to know that these three are in play. We've got the devil, the prince of the power of the air. We've got that, 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 that disordered desire uh, um, uh, arena that God is trying to put in order. But then we've got the, this current called the world that most people will go to. Okay, so let's, let, let's see how this plays out. And before we see how it plays out, we've got to understand, too, that Jesus... He does us this huge favor in John chapter 8. You know, if you study his teachings, Jesus, he preferred to talk about God. He much more preferred to talk about the heart of the Father and for him to be known than the devil. It was disproportionately that is his, his heart. But he does take a moment to describe the enemy in John chapter 8 when he's having this discussion with religious people who just don't get it. And I want to read it because I want us to notice that he never talks about red tights. He never talks about a pitchfork or fangs or like those really creepy snake eyes. He doesn't talk about any of that. You guys want to see what Jesus, this is the biggest description that he gives of, of, his, of our enemy. It's in John chapter 8, verse 44. And it says this. He says, and again, he's not saying it to you, so everyone just relax. This is a conversation he had with religious leaders. All right? He says this, he says, for you are the children of your father, the devil. A little spicy, huh? He says, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning, it says. And it's interesting because if you read the commentaries, what Jesus is doing there is he's making reference to the story that they all knew, the first story, the Garden of Eden. When the enemy manages to introduce death in the story, he does it with this person called Eve. He manages to get his way in close enough to do something that introduces death. Not just for her, not just for Adam, but for all of us, right? Worth the story? All right, he says, he has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he is a liar. He's a liar. And he's the father of lies. Again, notice he's, he's not describing him like this scary, demon-looking thing. No, he's describing him by what he does. He's a liar. You guys, he lies, and he lies again. And he constantly lies and lies, and he's always been doing the same thing. He's the father of lies is what it's telling us here. But listen to it. Listen to me. He's not a clumsy liar. He's very astute with it. In fact, if we go back to the garden story with Eve, it tells us that he chooses the most cunning and astute of the animals. So he doesn't pick the rhino with a big you know, horn or the ape with the strong arms or the lion with the sharp teeth. No, he chooses what? The snake. The snake snake that knows how to slither just right where it needs to get so it's close enough to just whisper 
what it needs to say to create enough doubt in your... It's exactly what he does with Eve. And he plants a lie. This is what he... He's not a clumsy liar. He's not going to, to, to say something that just doesn't make sense, that no one's going to believe. Like that the Packers are better than the Vikings. Like who's going to believe that? It's just not going to happen. And he, I'm sorry, I just... I had to. Forgive me. We're in church. Forgive me. So what does he do with Eve? He just gets in there and he's like, hey, are, are you sure? Are you sure that's what he said? Because, nah, I, Eve, I don't know. I, I doubt it. You're not going to die. See, he gives the, the, the lies that are half-truths, that just have enough truth to make you kind of wonder. Because really, if you think about it, Eve ate the apple and she didn't die. But she did die. She died, Adam died, we all died. And so he introduces this. And so he comes into our lives and he's like, nah, you know, like your digital life, it doesn't harm anyone. Yeah, maybe not like you think, but trust me, it has the potential to harm all of us. Or he takes a lie and he just kind of finds exactly where your customized little fissures are based upon your deep insecurities, your childhood traumas, your past betrayals, and all of your fears, and all the places you have shame. And he'll kind of find his way and go like, are you sure you chose the right person to marry? Because that was a long time ago. You didn't know who you were. Like, like maybe that was just for a season. Don't you want to live the exciting life? Yeah, I know you want to be married, but don't you want to be free, too, to do whatever you want, whenever you want, without having to ask anyone about it? Hmm. And, and he creates enough doubt that, listen to me, it would be one thing if it just stayed in that echo chamber. Like, just between us and that, that, that arena and the devil. And it, no, but he knows something. He knows it'll never stay there. He knows that we will always take a lie and we'll take it somewhere. And for most people, they take it to the influence and the current of the world. See, most of us want to believe that we're rational beings, but we're not. We're emotional, social beings. Whether you want to admit it or not, you care about what other people think of you. Your parents, how they feel about your last decision or, or your teachers. about You care about your coworkers and what they say about you behind your back. Even if you pretend you're just big and you don't care. You, you care. Because we're wired to want to be in relationship, in community. And so most people, they have this like half-truth kind of like, mm, really? Is, is sexual purity not just another form of self-imposed repression? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Well, let me go ask someone. Most people won't go to a small group and talk about it with a wise person that loves Jesus and knows the word. They don't bring it to the church. What do they do? They take it to the current of the world where it gets legitimized. You guys with me? It gets normalized. Where people are like, oh yeah, absolutely. Does it feel good? Be true to yourself. You do you. If your heart's asking for it, trust your heart. And the world normalizes. See, the devil knows if he just plants it, he can walk away, and the world will take care of the rest of it. 
We'll get, oh, I guess that must have been antiquated thinking. Oh, I just had it happen to me recently. I was having a conversation with a group of guys, and I was just so excited that this year we, we will celebrate our 23rd wedding anniversary. I'm super excited about that. So I've, I've been married longer than I've been single. So most of my life, it's just been with this amazing woman called Stephanie. And so I'm telling these people, like, I'm so excited. Like, I've never been with anyone else. We got married super young, and I'm so excited where the world says, like, man, if you got married young, you're dumb, number one, and you probably made the wrong decision because you're dumb. I'm like, no, I just, I can't. I want to be the old 92-year-old wrinkly dude with my beautiful, old, wrinkly wife, and I want to walk the park and take her hand, maybe pinch her bottom, maybe. I don't know. But I want to be the guy that goes like, you know what? We have had a beautiful life. I've never been with anyone else. And so I'm anyway, explaining to this, and then I look, start looking around and I'm like, Ugh. that's weird. And I wasn't trying to say it like, is a commentary for anyone else's life choices. I'm not, that's not the point. I'm just excited that this is what I've gotten to live. And so I'm, I'm sharing this, but listen, the world, those social environments, they will legitimize and they will normalize all sorts of weird things, things that are not true. And so there's a counter strategy. You guys want to hear the counter strategy? I got four minutes to give it to you. You guys ready? Because if we understand this, it's always going to be lies played against our disordered desires that then we, like lemmings, take to the world and go, oh, okay, this is cool. Versus the truth that settles in the deepest place of our souls that we get to share and grow with in loving Christian community. Okay, but but there's a word that I want to give you because we could spend three weeks talking about uh, all of these things. There's so many verses that go with it. But I just want to give you a word. That sums up the strategy because we can, if we, if we grasp the word, we'll remember what to do. And the word is stand. Say stand. stand. So you can stay seated, but stand. But stay seated. Okay? First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, when we talked about the roaring lion, it says this. It says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And it says, stand firm against him. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Stand. So stand firm against him. And listen, I love this because this, this one posture, this alone is enough to make things awkward, to make a statement. Can I have you do me a favor? Can you stand? Thank you. Now, let's say I didn't prompt her to do that, but I'm just here, I'm sharing something, and you do that. You stand up. Do you know how quick I'd lose all of your attention? Like, all of you would kind of be listening to me, but you'd all look over her, and internally, or even externally, would be like, what's with her? What is she doing? What is she thinking? she about to say something? Does she want us to see her cool vest? 
Did she get a new haircut? Like, what is going on? It started messing with you, right? You'd be like, do I stand up or do I sit down? I know her. Does she need emotional support? Do I sit by her? If you're an usher, like, your usher's already like, like, you already want to tackle her. Don't. You can sit down. The beautiful thing about taking a stand is it's not a passive thing. But listen, it's not an aggressive thing either. It's just, it's just, and this is why in, in our vernacular we use this turn of phrase, take a stand, correct? Take a stand means have a public position, like publicly, like, like declare, this is what I stand for, right? And I love that the scriptures are giving this as an image because it doesn't say, it doesn't say with this strategy, swing, spit, headbutt, throat chop, knee to the stomach, it doesn't say duck, cower, run, take out a gun. No. It just simply says stand. Stand firm. Let's read another verse, Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read it from the Common English Bible. It says this. It says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day, and after you've done everything possible, to still stand. So stand. It's getting a little redundant, right? You kind of feel like, do you think I'm dumb? I heard you already. But it says, so stand with a belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate. Put on the shoes on your feet so that you're ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all else, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. I mean, we can read this verse and we could take apart all these different pieces of the armor and we could have a heyday talking about it. But it's, it's making the reference over and over again, just stand. We fight by standing. We oppose by simply standing. It's a position of alertness. This, these verses end by saying, our, uh, offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit at all time. Stay alert and hanging in there and praying for all believers. The position of standing is the position of alertness. Like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm right here. I'm standing on something, in something. I'm standing for something, and I'm alert. You know, yesterday I drove in from the Twin Cities. And uh, it was in the afternoon. Beautiful day, right? Saturday was an impressive day. It's not 30 below zero like every time that we were up here. So it was like, it was a great drive. But there's something interesting that happened. As I put in the, the address of the hotel, um, and I just started driving, I realized, wait, something's off. Google Maps is quoting me three hours and 48 minutes to get to Rochester on a Saturday. No, it was driving. Like, again, I'm like, was it walking? What, did I pay the bicycle thing? I'm like, what is going on? And then I realized as I'm approaching 694 that it was having me go to Fremont Avenue. I'm like, what? I know it's, I got to get on. It started messing with me because it looked like Google Maps had an aversion to the highway. Because every single exit, it constantly recalibrated, and the Google Maps lady kept saying, exit here. And something in me was like, 
uh, I don't know much, but I've been to Rochester before. All I remembered was Highway 52, right? I don't know if it's highway, but it was like the little white 52 South. And I'm like, I just got to get to 52 South, and I think I'll make it. But I know that's on the other side of St. Paul, and so I got to, and so, but I constantly had Google Maps Lady in this new algorithm that they have trying to suggest a better way. A better way in as much as it's going to take me an hour and 45 minutes out, you know, longer when gas prices are super high. I mean, of course that's the better way if you ask her. But as I'm driving, there's just something in me going like, you know what? No. No, Google Maps lady. My brain wants me to, to tell me that you're right, but something in me says you're not. And so I'm going to ignore every single one of your exit here's. And somehow, I found 52, and somehow I got here, and it didn't take me three hours and 48 minutes. Why am I saying this? Because all of us, he's trying to find that little He's trying to tell you to exit here, to get off the course, to find a better way that's going to detour your life for a decade. Why not? Exit here. What is it? What is that little lie? Like you're not good enough? There's just no way for you to be happy? What is it? God can't forgive that? He doesn't love you? He's not listening? His plan is over? Because of something you do? What is the lie that just gets you doubting enough? Because I think if we can identify those and we take them to the lamp of the word of God that orders our steps, we'll be able to go, "Mm, no, Google Maps lady. No, I'm not exiting here. I'm going to stay the course. Let's stand. Let's stand firm. Let's sow to the spirit, the word says, instead of sowing to the flesh because it tells us a harvest is coming one way or the other and it's going to be for life or it's going to be for death. But we get to be the ones that choose, the wise ones that go like, you know what, my life, I need to expose my heart to the truth of God's word. I need to practice that. I need to get that so it begins sometimes very uncomfortably rearranging things and creating conversation that I bring to my small group Or to people in church, a wise mentor, a person that knows the word of God. To have those conversations that we go like, now I know who I am in Christ Jesus. Not perfect, but I am loved. God has a plan for me. You guys with me? You guys ready to take that stand? So let's stand. Like like literally, let's stand. Well, Father, thank you this morning for this time that we've had together. We just ask that your spirit now guide us and lead us into all truth. I just want to make an invitation as your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. If you're here for the first time or you've been here a couple times and you haven't made this heart personal decision of giving your life to Jesus Christ, this morning is your morning. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth this belief in our heart that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did and it was enough for us to be in perfect, 100% complete union with God. 
the Bible tells us we get a miracle. Our spirit that was dead now passes on to life and we get invited now into this process for the rest of our lives of walking with him. We'll be able to discern and hear his spirit. And so if you're here this morning, I'd like to make that invitation. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ and have that personal relationship with him, right where you're at, the eyes are closed, heads are bowed. If you just raise your hand so I know who I'm including in this prayer, that would be awesome. Is there anyone here this morning? looks like there isn't and that's okay I think for the rest of us just know in our hearts man let's let's be inviting people to church inviting those friends and those neighbors and those people that need to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ let me just pray for all of you once again father thank you thank you for this beautiful family high point church thank you for leading them and guiding them and protecting them and providing for them in Jesus name amen